Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. Not just their history, but how this music continues to evolve. We're opening the vault on classic records upon re-release, delving into their inner workings and their lasting impact. Maybe you're a longtime fan and wants to go a little deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener and you're curious to hear more. Either way, you're in the right place. Find us at Consequence of Sound or wherever you tune into podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Discography is brought to you by Reverb LP a marketplace for used and new music. Vinyl, CDs, tapes, even reel-to-reel. With buyer protection and impeccable selection, if you're looking to complete your discography, there's no better place. Shop for music on the go with the Reverb LP app, available on Android and iOS, or find them online at lp.reverb.com. Hello and welcome to Discography. I'm your host, Marco DeC. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this here show on the Consequence Podcast Network, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for nearly 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first release material to see who the music says that they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective. Discography can also be a very personal journey for me, your host, which you should know up front. Let's get on with today's show, but first... So thank you all so much for coming back this week for this episode of Discography. Season 3, Episode 2. Last episode, we covered from Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp finding The Who at the Railway Hotel with the intent of managing them to success and filming them all the while, sort of making The Who their own little project for management as art. That means that we also covered the albums My Generation, a quick one, The Who Sellout, the Ready Steady Who EP, which I almost always forget exists, and Tommy. So right now, where we're at in the story, and I'm not going to keep you here long, is that The Who just put out Tommy, now they've got to bring the thing to life on stage, and the world is about to meet The Who for real. Let's get going. We got a lot of ground to cover. the Who's job to bring Tommy to life on stage, and it was a weird period because, remember, before Tommy, the Who was kind of an underground band in most parts of the world, and a, a lot of the press you'd read about them said that they were a super dangerous band who destroyed their equipment, etc., and when this period rolls around, more people are seeing them than ever before, and sure, the band was always visually entertaining, especially Pete and Keith, but very little was getting shattered to bits on stage by 1969. Pete would actually grow to adore the disappointed groans as he'd often gently set his Gibson SG down at the end of these gigs. And try as you might to research The Who at the time, the legends that followed the band are often very different from the reality of what you'd get from their gigs now. 
There's no way to understate the importance of the live show from this period, though. They'd often open with a completely unreleased John Entwistle song called Heaven and Hell, and they'd give you a smattering of singles and covers, they'd play the bulk of Tommy, and usually give you at least My Generation by the end. One of the biggest moments of this new stage show was, without question, the Woodstock Festival. Three days of some of the biggest musical acts at the time in front of a crowd estimated at 400,000, and all of these people wanted to get to the land of Jimi Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, Credence, Janis Joplin, and Jefferson Airplane. People broke the fences down and poured into the concert site, but of course, this made it pretty damn hard to pay the bands. So The Who went on at 5 a.m. after a rambunctious and nearly impossible to follow set by Sly and the Family Stone. Imagine that, having to follow Sly and the Family Stone in the middle of the night. And the band was, un understandably, absolutely miserable. Or at least Pete was. As he was now pretty staunchly against mind-bending drugs, and he'd been told that literally every bit of water was spiked, he'd have to go without food or drink until they could be helicoptered off-site. And I can't imagine what that must have felt like for Roger, because vocalists certainly need to be hydrated, and take it from me, you need it the most when you're performing outdoors in August. Now, John and Keith loved to imbibe, so they were probably having a great time with all of the surprise dosing, but it's the video footage of this show that really presents the who in the light they'd probably be best remembered as. Keith in the back, limbs flailing, John on the left side of the stage hardly moving a muscle while wearing something insanely eye-catching, Pete flanking him on the right in his white boiler suit, which would illuminate him under stage lights, allowing him to leap and leave a lasting visual for even the furthest away attendee, but it's really Roger that defined this sort of new look who here. Roger was dripping with fringe, bare-chested, always opening his arms to the crowd as if to welcome them swinging his microphone in helicopter circles, his own sort of windmill. And Roger was the most teetotaling member of The Who, feeling as if someone had to decide to be the sober one in this group of misfits, but he was becoming the center of attention for the first time. And Woodstock would be the show that would ingrain Roger's Golden God stage presence into the minds of pretty much every rock fan the world over. And even though many claim that their Woodstock appearance is what really made The Who in America, the band has been steadfast in their claim that they consider it to be among the worst gigs that they ever played. Meanwhile, just one look at the footage of Sparks from this show and one has to wonder just how high this group's standards for themselves actually were. their star rose in America, as they became a louder and more unified force, they found themselves doing the last thing anyone would have seen coming years prior. They embarked on a tour of world-famous opera houses. They hoped to eventually end up in Moscow's Bolshoi Theater, but Russia simply wasn't having it. Wasn't a bust, though. They'd still make it to opera houses in Amsterdam, the Met in New York, and most importantly, the London Coliseum, where they filmed the show in hopes of using some of the footage in a possible Tommy film. But getting a film done didn't seem terribly likely when they still hadn't gotten a live record done properly. They came close, though, even putting together some acetates from their late 1969 shows in January of 1970, all of which had been recorded by Bobby Pritton. Trouble was, every show had been recorded, and every show was at least pretty good, but no one really had time, energy, or the needed interest to go through them all and pick out a suitable track list, and Pete would eventually order that 
all of these tapes were to be destroyed in a gigantic bonfire. On top of the sky is a place where you go if you've proliferation of well-recorded gigs from this era started showing up on the then-just-blossoming bootleg record circuit. And if those tapes were truly destroyed, it wouldn't seem that The Who moved quite quickly enough. So now, they'd not only need the live album to show off their unmatched stage prowess, but they'd also need an official live album just to compete with the bootleggers. Yes, the same bootleggers that would find the privately pressed Pete Townsend album called Happy Birthday, released in 1970, and start slapping tracks from that sucker on bootlegs as well. Of course, there were only around 2,500 of that album pressed, and once word got out that Pete was releasing compilation albums wherein he and his friends would write and sing songs in tribute to Meher Baba, demand far outstripped supply, especially when those friends were the likes of Ronnie Lane from The Small Faces and Ron Geeson. Though these tracks would show a much gentler and centered side of Pete than anyone probably thought that this rock and roll madman was capable of. But before they could do anything about those tracks getting pirated, they had to solve the live album conundrum and fast. So the band booked themselves into modest venues in Leeds and Hull in the UK, figuring that they'd use the best tracks from the two nights to compile a live album and be done with it once and for all. And if you think that was the extent of the direction the band was being pulled in at the time, there was also that nagging question of what they'd be doing to follow up a monster like Tommy. So in March of 1970, instead of planning something bigger for the next release, they'd start recording songs intended for an EP, sort of an extended single that could be bought cheaply. And that same month, the band would also release their first scraps of non-Tommy material in years with the single called The Seeker. They call me The Seeker. Written by Pete in a swamp in Florida, it's quite in line with the soul-searching spiritual outlook that had crept into so many of his lyrics at the time. It didn't light the world on fire with charts, airplay, or sales, but it was certainly a nice morsel to tide people over that just couldn't get enough who in their lives. A driving beat, a surprisingly country-tinged solo, Roger Daltrey showing off his rarely used falsetto, and Pete running down the list of pop culture figures that people have mistakenly looked to for answers. It's a solid song, but mostly, it suffered from the fact that each day, more people would hear of this phenomenon called Tommy, and they wanted to experience that. So, of course, you can't blame the record-buying public for missing a real gem on the B-side of The Seeker. It's your life to do what you want to Either way or push yourself out to the floor And whatever you make of the reason It's your life you're here for it's a tune called Here For More, and it furthers that sort of down-home feel heard on the A-side, except this tune is fully written by Roger. And it's my belief that if you didn't know any better, this would be considered every bit as good as The Seeker, but as Roger had been looked at as sort of just the singer for so long that it was easy to make an assumption that it wouldn't be able to hold a candle to Pete's compositions. The future of The Who would be unrecognizable if Roger's writing capabilities, at least as showcased in this song, were at least given the same respect as John's. 
but that's just conjecture in a guessing game. As it stands, Here For More is a vastly underrated song in a sea of underrated music. And to be honest, I've probably heaped more praise on it than anyone else, including Roger now that I think about it. But in May of 1970, the world finally got what it didn't know it needed, The Who's first official live album, Live at Leeds. Listen, I make it a point to not really cover live records here on Discography, but in this case, I think I'd be more liable to get raked over the coals if I didn't talk about this one. So, go ahead, try to find a list of best live records of all time that doesn't put Live at Leeds in the top ten. I've got a fidget cube here, and I'm going to play with it while I wait for you to do this. Come on, I mean, we're... You're, you're connected to the internet, otherwise you're not hearing this, so... I don't know what you're waiting for. Okay, enough time. Notice how it's usually in the top five and how it's the top of nearly half of those lists. It's not up for debate. It's just not. Live at Leeds is quite simply one of the most important and influential rock records of all time. It just happened to be recorded during a concert. Upon release, it was only six songs three of which were covers, Summertime Blues, Shaken All Over, and Mose Allison's Young Man Blues. And the three originals are Substitute, My Generation, and Magic Bus. And the last two that I mentioned take up an entire album side, with My Generation extended to around a quarter of an hour, and Magic Bus being more than doubled in length. And look, this album's simply going to tear your head off. And let me give you a little comparison. There'd been a Who rendition of Young Man Blues in circulation found on a record label sampler called The House That Track Built. Now here's a bit what it sounded like in the studio. Well, the young man ain't got nothing in the world these days. And alternately, here's what it sounds like on stage. Well, the young man ain't got nothing in the world these days. And that's pretty much what they'd been trying to commit to tape for all these years. There's so much going on here that it's hard to know where to begin to describe the magic of this album. But one thing that I never hear name-checked enough is that it's the rare live album that doesn't try to give you the vibe of the event, but rather it's trying to actually put you on the damn stage. Listen to a little bit more of Young Man Blues and notice that John is mixed all the way to the left, which is where his amplifiers were, and Pete's all the way on the right for similar reasons, and you've got Roger and Keith right up the middle. It's a simple thing to actually put the sound where it would have been heard spatially at the gig, but somehow no one had really thought to do that yet. This version of Young Man Blues also shows off something they'd been unable to replicate in the studio, and that's the symbiotic relationship brewing and just getting stronger and stronger between John and Pete. Well, I mean, for the first time, you can hear just how much John Entwistle is actually doing with his bass guitar, but also, they'd have a general arrangement for whatever song they were playing, but they could stretch any song out as long as they wanted to. Pete would throw out a melody during a jam, and John would respond in kind. Meanwhile, there's this other 
bit of unlikely symbiosis going on with Roger Daltrey and Keith Moon. See, Roger would sing a line, and Mooney would change his drum patterns ever so slightly between Roger's lines, almost as if he's composing a duet, but only based on however Roger delivered that line. And you just can't plan this kind of stuff. It's something that can only be learned through playing together day in, day out for years. And this is where the chemistry of The Who as they'd come to be known would really start to shine. And sure, they're stretching out young man blues, but they're also cutting the running time of, say, substitute in half for no discernible reason. But it sounds so authoritative that you don't really question, you just accept. When a band sounds this sure of themselves, you just gotta get out of the way and assume they know what they're doing. And releasing Summertime Blues as the single for this album might have seemed positively regressive after Tommy, but then you hear it, and again, you realize that this band knows exactly what they're doing. For my money, the real magic on the original six-song release of Live at Leeds is that double shot of My Generation and Magic Bus on the second side. I mean, My Generation is just ferocious as hell. This version of My Generation takes you through more stop-and-start jams than I can count, occasionally dipping back into Tommy for a quick jam on the riffs from the song Sparks, or maybe a snatch of See Me, Feel Me. But knowing that each time Pete brings the band to a halt, he's about to launch into something the other three have likely never heard before, and they all just sort of fall in line as if they've been doing this their whole lives, it's some pretty breathtaking synergy. I know I might have sounded dismissive of Magic Bus before on the last episode, and I do think it's a fun but knowingly silly song in its original single form. But who could have predicted that on a good night, this thing sounds like it can positively achieve freaking flight? It's just under 40 minutes in its original six song form, but it's 40 minutes that would define the future of rock and roll, the sound of the Who in the future, and it'd become the gold standard, which all other live albums would be judged against by critics and, well, people like me. None of which seems like it'd be plausible once I tell you these three tidbits. One, for an album that sounds so raw, there's actually some pretty intensive studio doctoring. Did you know that, for example, most of the backing vocals were overdubbed in the studio? It's true. Apparently, they just weren't properly recorded at the show, so they'd have to be slapped on later. Two, the tapes were not without faults. For example, something was going awry with the multi-tracks of Magic Bus, so Pete just made the executive de decision to just play that section backwards. No, really. Number three, the band actually preferred the show from the next night in Hull. Initially, in fact, they'd planned to use that show for this album. And as they were exceptionally excited to include John's opening track, Heaven and Hell, 
They noticed that the bass guitar seemed to be missing, and that's a real problem for a live Who record. Unfortunately, nobody bothered to check the rest of the show for around 40 years, otherwise they'd have seen that only the first few songs were afflicted. But we can basically thank that oversight for Live at Leeds existing at all. And it would take over 40 years for the Leeds concert to be released in full, barring the occasional edit, and in halfway decent fidelity, and in its original running order. Ditto for the whole show, but... Um, I don't think that's ever been released in its original running order, but anyways, I'm of the belief that if you're ever sitting there thinking that you've lost your interest or passion in rock and roll, the original six song Live at Leeds, it's all you need to kick that mood. It's destructive, it's explosive, it's unified, it's raw but also overworked, there's feedback, there's bum notes, there's tapes being played in the wrong direction, but somehow it's also perfect in nearly every conceivable way. Maybe somebody's daughter. That's the strains of the band playing the song called Water at the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival to an audience of over 600,000 people. Now those tapes weren't considered usable at the time, but eventually the full show would be released around 1996 on CD. And there's even a DVD where the existing footage of the gig can be watched, but it's also pretty hacked up, pretty weirdly edited, and pretty out of order. And even though you might want to curse Murray Lerner each time you only get, say, half of the song Eyesight to the Blind on that home video, you've also got to be thankful because otherwise we wouldn't have ever seen John Entwistle's famous skin-tight leather skeleton outfit and those gigantic Klieg lights that the band was using to really hammer home the Tommy finale or, or that the band was becoming so powerful and respected that the four of them could actually convince over a half a million people to sit down so that everyone could see. Sit down, stand up, sit down, sit up. When we do festivals, we like our audience fit. Meanwhile, there's actually a fully filmed live gig from this era that's never officially seen the light of day in full, and that's the band's performance at a place called the Tanglewood Music Shed in Massachusetts. Bits of it have appeared in official formats. It's clearly a rights hang-up that's kept this thing from reaching the marketplace. I've seen a version that edits all the best sources together, and I can tell you that it's my belief that it's quite possibly the finest filmed concert I've ever personally seen, only rivaled by the Talking Heads Stop Making Sense film, so yeah, if you can hear this and you've got any say-so about the red tape surrounding that show, please knock it off because you're literally depriving the world of one of the best performances ever committed to videotape. two gigs is because they premiere songs intended for that EP I mentioned a while ago during this run. New tracks like Naked Eye, Water, and The Criminally Unknown, I Don't Even Know Myself, would find their ways into the set lists, and these performances would often pack an even bigger punch than the Tommy portion of the night, possibly owing to the band's newfound unity and Roger's ability to now project to the back row. And with this connection to the audience, it didn't matter that they weren't playing all their hits. All they had to do was show up play you something good, and mean it. And their power in chemistry would take care of all the rest. And that's always been the ace up the who's sleeve. Even in the mid-60s, when it was completely in vogue that teenage ladies would scream and shriek through any rock or pop performance, recordings showed that people were listening at who's shows. 
Maybe that was because the audience was scared of the aggressive stances taken by the entertainers? Maybe it was the fact that the band was always the loudest group on any bill they'd find themselves on, or maybe everyone secretly thought this band had the answers that Seekers couldn't find from the Beatles, Timothy Leary, and Bob Dylan, or maybe I'm projecting. Whatever the case, we're actually quite lucky that the songs were performed at all because by December of 1970, that whole project had been scrapped. It had been stretched to a full album according to some circulating acetates, and it had also alternately been whittled down to a four-song maxi-single, but for whatever reason, it just wasn't working out. But that was likely because Pete had a new idea. One so revolutionary that every other shred of plans would now need to take a back seat. Pete had a concept that would change everything. Not just for The Who, but if enacted properly and successfully, the entire world as they knew it. This concept was called Lifehouse. When Pete Townsend pitched Lifehouse to The Who, it's this record geek's opinion that it changed everything for the band, just the pitch alone. I mean, dizzying and euphoric heights would still be achieved left and right, but the unity for each individual member and their management not only began to fade at that very moment, each member fighting for a completely different result than the other, but more than anything, Lifehouse would become Pete's white whale. His holy grail, and in some way, a partial catalyst for nearly every move he'd make for the band from now on. And there's really no way to get Lifehouse right when talking about it. Any product with the name Lifehouse emblazoned on it, it's ultimately there after a series of compromises. And even if you research this sucker for years, you could likely come away with a very different read on it than I did, so listen up. I ask you nicely for some consideration and a pass while I try to talk about this unfinished behemoth, a concept that was ultimately a shape-shifting set of mini-concepts. When people talk about evolution, and specifically the Big Bang, that bang must have made an amazing noise, and like most noises, you could probably boil it down to a musical note. And if everything is making a sound, if you pan back far enough from civilization, the accumulated tones of every living bit of matter in the universe must be pretty stunning. So with that said, Lifehouse was supposed to take place in a far-off future. Rock and roll didn't exist anymore, and neither did a lot of other stuff because pollution had become so rampant, you really couldn't go outside. People lived in life suits, which could simulate any experience you could dream up, from the grand to the mundane to the sexual to the petty and shallow. The life suits would be connected through a massive grid, keeping all life suit wearers connected at all times. So, in 1970, Pete Townsend basically wrote the internet. You heard me right. In 1970, Pete Townsend basically wrote the internet. But he wanted to take it much, much further. See, in his concept, people would eventually be brought together by the promise of live rock music, and of course that music would have been provided by The Who, and sure, Pete had a character or two, but if it was his job to write things that his audience would be able to relate to, why not just write the audience? And that's what Pete hoped to do. They wanted to take over the Young Vic Theater for endless free shows or rehearsals or live dress rehearsals while the band appeared to be whipping new songs into shape, but really, Pete wanted the audience to sort of just live with the band. He'd input tons of numerical data about the people of Lifehouse into early synthesizers, 
and it would spit out a composition. So say there's an audience member named Bill. They'd get to know Bill enough to put all of his pertinent info into the machine. The machine would write Bill's song. The Who would perform it. Everyone becomes one, gets saved by music, and eventually when this thing would somehow become a book, movie, film, and album, everyone would disappear at the end as their combined songs would replicate the first Big Bang. Now, if I got any of that wrong, it's because Pete would remove and add new aspects to the concept nearly every time he'd talk about it, and if you think it's frustrating to try and make sense of it, imagine being in the band with the guy and being expected to comprehend an ever-changing scenario while also, you know, showing up on time and just playing the right notes. Well, they did try a couple of rehearsal gigs at the Young Vic around December of 1970, but they didn't get too far with those, as the shows weren't really all that well advertised few knew to come, and when audience members did show up and recognize the Who, well, they'd just yell for Pinball Wizard or something. And then they'd eventually have to go home for supper, or to feed their cat, and then it would all just fall apart. John Entwistle was not crazy about what he saw as a communal living situation which did not appeal to his sensibilities in the least. Roger Daltrey seemed especially perplexed by Pete's new idea, commenting that there simply wouldn't be enough wire in the world to keep everyone connected. And of course, there's the fatal flaw of trying to do a life house for real when no one was connected to their life suits. Heck, you might be able to pull it off now and it might solve the problems with the homeless if you did it just right, but around 1971, it just wasn't happening. Though in March of 1971, they'd not lost hope in the project completely, still thinking that they could wring maybe a sci-fi movie out of it, and The Who could at least provide the soundtrack, with songs that wouldn't maybe necessarily explain the story, but rather just enhance it. So they'd gathered at the record plant in New York for preliminary recording, but Kit Lambert wasn't filling Pete's much-needed cheerleader role this time, nor was he able to translate Pete's lofty concepts into words that would inform and excite those in their inner circle as he'd done in the past. Instead, he'd use what were supposed to be meetings to secure funding for a Lifehouse film to pitch his script for... the film version of Tommy. Because remember, film was basically the whole reason Lambert and Stamp had sunk their hopes and fortunes into a band that they found called The High Numbers in the first place. And Tommy, it was a success. That's a good ending to their story, right? Not this muddled Lifehouse thing that only Pete Townsend could seem to understand. It's years later. I'm still trying to wrap my head around how this thing could have ever worked. And as I'm pretty sympathetic to even the most harebrained of Pete's creations, if I'm willing to put in the work to dissect and understand Lifehouse with years of material at my disposal, yet I'm failing, one can imagine how hard it was for anyone else to comprehend, but especially in 1971. And also how lonely and isolating this must have been for Mr. Townsend. It should hardly surprise you to learn that this would lead to Pete's first genuine nervous breakdown. Lifehouse was temporarily scrapped, but Pete's ridiculously good songs for the project weren't, and rock music was never going to be the same. Meanwhile, John Entwistle, the bassist, he's still writing, and he's not only getting better and better at it, but 
as he'd basically found room for The Who to release a whopping four songs of his in the midst of Pete's massive projects since Tommy, two of which were written to order, John was itching for a new outlet for his tunes. John's first solo album was released in May of 1971 on track records called Smash Your Head Against the Wall. just get it out of the way now. John Entwistle is and has always been the not-so-secret weapon for The Who's sound. And while no one would hear this album and mistake it for a long-lost Who album, you can find so much about what people love about early Who music in these tracks as well that it boggles my mind how this thing just languishes away in obscurity. It just isn't fair. The first John Entwistle solo record, Smash Your Head Against the Wall, is way, way better than it ought to be, considering how unknown it seems to be, and frankly, its only crime seems to be that the guy that made it was already in a very famous band. So do you like the stick-in-the-mud heavy rock of Live at Leeds? Well, look no further than the opening cut here, My Size. song my size full of all the riffage you'd want, but it turns out that this uber-catchy ditty is also not so secretly a direct sequel and response to one of John's earlier Who triumphs. All those playfully dark and macabre Who moments? You'll find plenty of them here, and one great example is the brassy song called Ted End. It's about the death of poor Teddy Greenstreet. And besides dusting off that French horn for some tasty melodies, John succeeds in making a great argument for Teddy being in a better place while not even mentioning if he ended up in heaven or hell. Heaven and Hell, John also offers up a different take on the song of the same name that was buried on the B-side to Summertime Blues. It's not hard to imagine that he was frustrated at the song being considered powerful and good enough to open two years worth of Who concerts, but not good enough to make it to an actual record, almost all of which were increasingly filled up by Pete's concepts. Or maybe he wasn't happy with the original take at all. He takes a much more laid-back, groove-based approach to this one, and it, it never feels like a retread or even out of place. In fact, Smash Your Head Against the Wall is its own sort of light concept album. The songs mostly concern themselves with living, dying, extending both phases, and also the afterlife, and that extends to the artwork. John appears on the cover in a death mask with an x-rayed picture of dying lungs and a rib cage superimposed on top. Some gatefold copies have what Wikipedia tells me is an x-ray of a pregnancy test just to really drive that point home. Not everything is so narrative-heavy here, though. The incredibly upbeat Pick Me Up Big Chicken is alternately a pro and anti-drinking song, depending on which verse you're paying attention to. Then again, drinking can definitely kill you, so maybe it isn't that far removed. And speaking of drinking... Keith Moon shows up for a percussion jam in the middle of the wonderfully melodic number 29, which spends most of its running time taking snake oil salesmen to task. And it's also worth noting that Cy Langston, who was the co-writer of the unreleased Who song, 
early morning cold taxi, as well as a Who roadie, did such a brilliant job on lead guitar throughout the tracks that some believed it was actually Pete Townsend playing under a pseudonym. And heck, two members of the Bonzo Dog Band jump in on the aforementioned number 29, so even if this were just some vanity project, well, John certainly knew how to pick them, but it's not a vanity project. It's a straight-up fantastic rock record. One that would cause Roger Daltrey to remark that he learned more about John from this record than he gleaned from a decade's worth of playing music with him. And when tracks like I Believe in Everything were mistakenly thought to be brand new Who songs when DJs received promotional singles, well, it's pretty hard to argue the quality of the songwriting here. the ultimate standout here is called What Are We Doing Here? And while the subject matter might inhabit the well-worn territory of yet another rock star being homesick on the road, the chorus makes it universal enough that, well, there's kind of no excuse for this thing not to be a classic rock staple already. that there's nothing here that John didn't intend for you to hear because he self-produced the album. The bad news is that John loved to endlessly tinker with things, and as a result, there's around at least five different mixes of the album that can be mixed and matched any which way. So your copy of the album may be completely different from mine texturally. Now the songs themselves won't really change, but in some cases, you may have a completely different vocal take on what are we doing here than I do. And that's pretty frustrating. And the fact that I can't really chart which mixes ended up where should be a clue that the time to reappraise John and Twistle's solo catalog is not only long overdue, but we still need to figure out what the heck's going on with it in the first place. Still, maybe people didn't buy this album because they didn't recognize the name on the cover. And if they did know who John was, maybe they just thought it'd be a musician showing off his bass chops in an epic display of wankery, and sure, the bass playing is as stellar as you'd predict, but you'd be dead wrong. John just wanted to get this stuff out there. In all honesty, he spends as much time playing piano here as he does singing and playing bass and making all of the complex brass arrangements. He also didn't seem concerned that The Who would finally be putting out new material in less than three months that would certainly overshadow this record. Some argue that John would never create anything this good again. I don't necessarily agree, but I will concede that vocally, instrumentally, compositionally, John was absolutely at the top of his game. And it's a good thing, because despite the contention about Pete's latest conceptual ideas in 1971, most folks would tell you that his co-workers were all as good as they'd ever be at the exact same time. Hey there, in just a second we're going to talk about who's next, but... But first, here's some links that matter. First of all, thank you so much for tuning in to Discography. You could be doing anything with your time, but you're here with us on Episode 2 and the Consequence Podcast Network appreciates you so much, and so do I. If you want to hang out with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash discography on CPN. Or you can just search Discography, but we're the one, you know, Discography on CPN. As in Consequence Podcast Network, you got it, right? 
If you got a few minutes, please feel free to rate and review our show, Discography, on iTunes or, you know, wherever you procure your own fine podcasts. Anywhere that you can procure this podcast, please rate and review it because that's how algorithms work nowadays. And without your support, well, we won't get into the ears of new fans. And you want fellow Who fans to hear the show, right? I thought so. Thank you in advance. Heck, even if you don't want to rate and review, simply spreading the episodes, word of mouth, that's all wonderful. It really helps out a lot. Now, on a completely different note, my name's Mark with a C, and I've been making records for nearly 20 years now. Some of them are all right. check out more of my creative endeavors, go to markwithac.com or markwithac.bandcamp.com. You can download nearly anything I've ever put out, but you can also get records, compact discs, and even cassettes in some cases. markwithac.bandcamp.com, just to click the get tangible stuff thing. Now, of course, if you're not so into physical media lately, like a lot of folks aren't, you can always stream what I do at Say Spotify, just look me up, Mark with a C, M-A-R-C-W-I-T-H-A-C. Or Google Play, wherever you stream, I'm probably there. But let's just say you want to take it a step further than that. And you want to hang out with me on social media, great, come hang out. Facebook.com slash Mark with a C music. Or Twitter, this is usually the easiest place for me to have a little bit of back and forth with you. Um, on Twitter, I'm at MarkFi. That's M-A-R-C-F-I, as in there's Hi-Fi, Lo-Fi, Mid-Fi, and MarkFi. And of course, as I've been doing this for quite some time, I thought it would be interesting to write a book from the perspective of a DIY musician trying to talk about the incredibly low-tier stuff that happens to them when they've got a very big and fragile heart. That's right, I'm putting out a book next year to celebrate my 20th anniversary as Mark with a C. I'm also going to put out a 3LP uh, sort of best of collection, and I'm raising money to do that at patreon.com slash markwithac, because as you can imagine, podcasting doesn't pay all the bills. Selling independent pop records, they don't really pay all the bills, but you can help me get this stuff done on time, and you'll get really cool stuff in return, even including my other podcast, The Real Congregation, but I've already said far too much. If you're not subscribing to other great CPN shows, oh, you are missing the boat. There is filmography. There is This Must Be the Gig. There's Halloweenies. There's so many. State of the Empire. How can I forget the Lucasfilm podcast? There's a lot, a lot going on here. I'm Mark with a C, and this has been Links That Matter. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, this is Cap, CPN Network Director. Mark and I bond over a lot of things, but most of all, music. We both obsess over it together and dive deep into nuanced collections of rare records to get that bigger picture. You probably know how it is. One day you realize that a bunch of your favorite records all have the same producer or session musician, and the next thing you know, you're on a wild goose chase for rare records hunting down more of those sweet sounds. Or say there's a band you love, like The Who, with an expansive catalog, different mixes of the same track, critical bootlegs. That's why I'm so excited that this season of Discography is sponsored by Reverb LP. You might know Reverb as an incredible music gear resale marketplace. Well, Reverb LP is their marketplace for used and new music. Buy records, sell your records so you can have money to buy other records. They have an impeccable selection, which you can scope out online or even better via their app, which is available on Android and iOS. In fact, if you're looking to start your Who collection or fill in some gaps, we've got a virtual bin for you to flip through. Just go to lp.reverb.com COS and you'll see all the records discussed in this season. Reverb LP offers buyer protection so you won't ever have to worry about a bum deal. And say you're hunting down an unofficial release, rare tracks, bootlegs, you'll find them here. As far as I'm concerned, and this is me speaking like 100% personally, Reverb LP is the marketplace for record collectors. Download the app, scope out the store, or browse this season's discography at lp.reverb.com cos. Now, back to Mark. In August of 1971, against all odds, The Who released an album that in time would surpass Tommy and really nearly anything they'd put out before or since, and they didn't even set out to make it. Heck, for the first 45 seconds of the album, there's no instruments that one would typically think of when imagining The Who's sound at the time. The album is called Who's Next, and Who's Next rules. It rules in such a supreme way that there's next to nothing I can tell you about it that either won't sound like a retread of someone else's opinion on it, or that I'm just being a total fanboy and I'm just blowing some smoke. So I'm just gonna tell you that I'm fully aware of this Catch-22, but I'm not about to water down or undersell Who's Next. And listen, that's cool if you don't want to agree, but it's not even worth arguing that the album is a stone classic that changed nearly everything in its wake. If you tried to argue, you'd be arguing against an album that contains going mobile and bargain and behind blue eyes and won't get fooled again and Baba O'Reilly. Yeah, it is so overplayed on FM radio that even the first Boston album is a little bit sick of it, but for that very reason, Who's Next cements what the Who was, is, and will always be remembered as for the bulk of their fan base at least in America, so how do we get here? Well, if you'll remember that we were talking about the band's inability to get Lifehouse off the ground and whip it into shape, by the time the initial record plant sessions had gone sideways, partially due to manager Kit Lambert having graduated to harder drugs, Glenn Johns, the producer, had moved the sessions to Olympic Studios, and while the band recorded nearly every scrap of material that Pete had brought in for Lifehouse, Glenn Johns is the one that did the impossible he somehow got through to the gang that the average song quality in this batch was so high that it not only didn't need a concept, but it should be pared down to a single album, 
and he convinced them to let him pick out the track list all on his own. It's not like any Who member to let go of a fight, especially Pete, though his nervous exhaustion might have made him more likely to give in to such a request at the time, or potentially everyone was just past caring at this point. Roger even later admitted that this was somehow the closest they'd ever come to splitting up. Luckily for us, they weathered the storm, and the results may not have looked like Pete initially envisioned, but these nine songs were exactly the kick in the pants that rock and roll was apparently desperate for, so let's get down to it. I can't really see any other way to do this than to just go track by track here, so please pardon me going about the album in such a predictable and basic way. Because we start off with Baba O'Reilly. God, where do you even start? The song is partially about Pete's recollections of Woodstock and partially about farming. Yes, farming. Well, at least it would have been in the context of Lifehouse. Instead, it's now become an unlikely anthem with no chorus, no usage of the title in the lyrics, and the title itself is an obscure little tribute to Meher Baba and electronic composer Terry Riley. And that synth line? It's actually a Lowry organ that reportedly spat out this melody when Pete had put in the vital statistics of both of the aforementioned people. But it also comes from a time long before click tracks were common, so while it seems rather mean to tether a madman like Keith Moon to a virtual metronome, he not only took to it quite well, his accents are every bit as lyrical as the actual words. And after Roger yells out Teenage Wasteland a few times in the timeless refrain of They're All Wasted, then it turns into sort of a country hoedown, complete with a violin courtesy of David Arbus. It's basically the least likely anthem of all time, and that wasn't lost on the band who chose not to release this as a single. Actually, let me make this very clear. In the UK, none of the songs on Who's Next were marketed as singles, with the exception of a laughably neutered edit of Won't Get Fooled Again, and that's the most impressive thing about this album. It's the rare record that became a monolithic classic simply for being undeniably great. And there's something to be said for it coming out in the throes of FM DJs still being able to play whatever they damn well pleased, but before I get away, let's go ahead and move on to Bargain. It took around nine stabs at this tune before the band hit on a take that everyone was happy with, and it certainly paid off in spades. What might sound like it was built to be the hook line for a truck sale jingle is actually quite the love song, and by love song I mean it's an open love letter to God, which is something that's simply going to start coming up more and more frequently. But the song's also a beast, built off of Pete's original demo to keep certain parts intact, just like Baba O'Reilly. And while Roger's wailing delivery of the lyrics might be the most immediately a striking and memorable part here, that ever-present symbiosis between John and Keith as they hold down the rhythm section duties, that's the real MVP on this track, but that shouldn't surprise anyone. Now, Love Ain't For Keepin' might be the shortest cut here, barely clocking in at over two minutes, that's really all that one needs. They'd attempted longer versions with Leslie West from the band Mountain on guitar, but there wasn't much extra going on at the end of the day. For any other group, this might have been the crossover single. 
On Who's Next, after they cut off all the initial fat and pulled the song down to its barest essentials, Love Ain't For Keepin' might be a great song, but on Who's Next, it's most often looked at merely as the lead-in to John Entwistle's song, My Wife. one upside to Who's Next not being Lifehouse is that there was at least a little room for a John Entwistle composition, and this one would almost reach the heights of Boris the Spider for the pedestrian Who fans. It's a really cool driving rocker in the key of B, and though Entwistle takes the lead in every conceivable way on this track, playing bass, horns, and doing the lead vocals, some have hinted that John may not have been completely thrilled with the production decisions made by Glenn Johns, reportedly walking in one day to hear a finished mix with an overbearing delay saturating his voice. He'd make some moves that would make it easy to believe that the Who version had disappointed him at least. But with all that aside, it'd be the song he'd sing most often at the Who's shows to come. It certainly ended up with more U.S. airplay than anything else he'd been the main writer on, and for a song inspired by a real-life argument with his then-wife Allison that he decided to embellish to outlandish degrees, it's safe to say that everything here worked out for the best. Side one ends with a beautiful song called The Song Is Over. Now this piano-driven number with just a hint of gurgly synth work for color does sound as if it can effortlessly soar over mountaintops. Pete sings the verses with such fragility, and Roger sounds as if he's bellowing directly from his heart, unamplified, echoing over the plains and into unsuspecting ear canals miles away. The song is over is as close to a perfectly executed song as one can find, and it's certainly an effective side-closer on the original vinyl. You're taken on such a journey in just the first five tracks that I'm not sure how a sane person can even wait to flip the record over at this point, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the song's inclusion is a teensy bit problematic here. See, as it likely would have shown up at the very end of Lifehouse, right after everybody disappeared after replicating the Big Bang with the discovery of the Universal Chord, you hear this echo of Roger singing a seemingly disconnected line. And if you've dug into the Lifehouse saga, you'll recognize that as a reference to the lead line in one of the strongest and most important songs to come out of that batch, fittingly titled Pure and Easy. And if you know that song, you know that no matter how perfect the song is over might be, Pure and Easy might actually be the stronger composition, and then you kind of miss it. And frankly, if that's the only flaw I can find here, and you'd only notice if you're a super hardcore fan, well that's saying a lot, isn't it? Meanwhile, side two opens with what might be the sleeper gem on the album, getting in tune. Roger brings more vulnerability to a simple set of lyrics than Pete probably ever intended for him to do, and eventually the band runs up to a full tilt yet slow burning boogie. The versions that the band were working on at the record plant might have had a little more gusto, but this is the cut here that John really makes with his little flourishes that dance around Nicky Hopkins' deceptively simple piano chords. It saves its strongest hooks for the little rave up at the end, and it almost seems like getting in tune is just a pile of unused great choruses that Pete didn't have any other use for, so he just stuck them end to end to see what happened. And thank the stars that he did, but after two pretty emotionally heavy songs, we certainly needed to lighten up a little bit, and that's exactly what we get next with Going Mobile. When I'm mobile! 
Again, another classic rock radio staple, a fan favorite, and somehow never performed on stage to my knowledge by the band, despite its irresistible power trio groove. Going Mobile was mostly composed by Pete after he'd had a nice caravan holiday with his family. It's his only lead full vocal on the album, but this is the rare case where the jamming and the solo might take top honors. Sure, there's a guitar solo, but that solo is run through an envelope filter and then overdubbed with a VC3 synthesizer. I mean, what a complex way to create a simple song about the open road, right? And this one is also notable as Roger Daltrey doesn't appear on the song in any form or fashion, and according to some, he wasn't even present when the song was recorded. While most of Who's Next is proudly electric, touting the sound of a beautiful Gretsch guitar that Joe Walsh had gifted to Pete, this one actually seems to center on acoustic tones, a standout in an album full of standouts. But maybe that acoustic stuff was really just there to prep us for this one. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man. Behind Blue Eyes. The first few minutes of Behind Blue Eyes, which are also largely acoustic, full of beautiful three-part harmony from John, Pete, and Raj, and it's likely the longest amount of time that Keith Moon ever spent sitting still. And then of course it explodes in the second half, inspired by a prayer that Pete attempted to compose to keep his various temptations at bay. Stuff like when my fist clenches crack it open before I use it and lose my cool. And when I smile, tell me some bad news before I laugh and act like a fool. Almost a single in the UK, the prototype for all the power ballads that would one day exist, and a song that pretty much every blue-eyed human being has related to at some point. It'd go on to be one of their most world-famous songs, and that's pretty wild when you imagine that in Lifehouse, it could have just been the theme song for a villain named Jumbo. And that weirdly makes the song feel a bit cheaper to me. I'm a terrible Who fan. I can't decide between wanting to hear a finished Lifehouse and also being glad that things panned out the way that they did, but man, oh man, did they ever save the best for last here. An eight and a half minute song about political inaction built on multiple breakdowns, buildups, and long swaths of pre-programmed synthesizers? Nothing about Won't Get Fooled Again should work. This is where the album has just been way too good, way too consistent, and you sort of expect a big and long experimental piece at the end to just sort of muck up the proceedings, but nope, you got John Entwistle playing what sometimes seems like a different song altogether that also just happens to sync up with everyone else perfectly, you've got Pete's Gretsch hollow body laying down a guitar tone that budding guitarists would try to replicate for years, Keith practically redefining what drum dynamics can even be as he builds the song up and down numerous times, and you've got Roger, not just in top form, but also he delivers the scream to end all rock and roll screams. There's just pretty much no universe in which Who's Next should have worked, let alone as well as it did. You just weren't hearing AC3 synthesizer-led songs on rock radio. And hell, The Who had promised a huge concept, but only eked out a nine-song platter. But there's such a massive uptick in the fidelity department, no doubt thanks to Glenn Johns running the production instead of the indisposed Kit Lambert. On paper, Who's Next should have been a failure. The end of the road. Instead, it defined that there were no limits to what rock music could achieve and inspire, while also pretty much setting the blueprint for arena rock as we know it. Not bad for an album full of compromises. 
the strains of Let's See Action, a non-album single released barely two months after Who's Next. Well, in the UK and a few other territories at least, this is one of a number of tracks that were cut from the Lifehouse project and positioned as a standalone single. The heavily acoustic number is another lyrical duet between Roger and Pete, and these words... Well, they're just 100% Mehir Baba, no question. And as one can predict, the caliber of Pete's writing at the time gave the group an embarrassment of riches. And how could one even pick a single out of the pile of unused songs? I mean, they're all about as good as the next, even though Let's See Action might seem just a bit limp when put next to the misdirected fury of Won't Get Fooled Again. And come to think of it, actually, with this single following Won't Get Fooled Again, if you were only paying attention to the Who's singles market... One couldn't be blamed for thinking that The Who just went into heavily political territory during this period, but that'd be a bit misguided. And really, let's be honest here, the real reason to seek out the Let's See Action single is the B-side, John Entwistle's When I Was a Boy. Not only does it open with a tasty bit of French horn, and not only is it every bit as good as all the other Who material from this era, this ode to lost childhood innocence is without a doubt John's most mature composition to date, and frankly, with it being this good, it's really a shame that John couldn't get on the same page as Pete for Lifehouse. John was getting so good compositionally at this point that one can only daydream about John writing the glue that might have held Lifehouse together. Uh, I think it's a bit unfair that when I was a boy is left to languish on, you know, rarities records and the B-sides of Scratch Up 7 Inches, but such is the life of a Who fan. I mean, have you ever heard the B-side to Won't Get Fooled Again? It's called I Don't Even Know Myself, and it was eventually slated for that scrapped 1970 EP, and likely brushed up again for Lifehouse inclusion. It has a bouncy hook to die for, and somehow this thing is just a B-side. Don't pretend that you know me, cause I don't even know myself. Realizing that they had made a slew of new fans that were mostly only aware of Tommy, maybe Live at Leeds and Who's Next, the band Rush released a compilation initially titled The Who Looks Back. Later it was retitled Meaty, Beady, Big and Bouncy. And when I say that this thing was Rush released, I mean that they didn't even have a chance to run it past their management. And when Kit Lambert saw the thing, well he tried to have it recalled or at the very least have the track list changed. Not too sure about what he'd have done differently, as it's mostly just a compilation of the A-sides of their singles up to the Seeker, but there were some interesting choices made, like a previously unissued longer version of Magic Bus and a totally different take on I'm a Boy to close the disc. I've even met folks that have argued that this compilation was all the who that they were ever going to need in their lives. But this host thinks that the compilation has been usurped and improved upon in the years since, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Meantime, the band went on a tour to promote all of this activity that many people swear was their absolute live peak. However, as the band had now instilled a ban on cameras and reportedly recording equipment altogether at the gigs, we can only glean that information from pretty grainy bootlegs. 
The set lists would draw heavily from the new album, usually opening with a few older singles and wrapping up with a clutch of numbers from Tommy and... Okay, let's get serious here. On December 13th, 1971, The Who played the second of two back-to-back shows in San Francisco. They not only recorded the show, they actually went through the motions of putting together an acetate to release the show as a follow-up to Live at Leeds. They decided to can it because the only exclusive material would have been a cover of Marvin Gaye's Baby Don't You Do It. But as anyone who has ever heard these tapes can and will attest, it's not only a crime against nature that it's gone unreleased for so long, the show being released in full is more or less the holy grail for most Who fans, and we aren't shy or quiet about it. There's no excuse for this thing to sit and collect dust in the vault anymore. Is there? Anyways, where were we? Right. The Road didn't stop Pete from releasing another compilation in tribute to Meher Baba. This one was called I Am, and it was released in February of 1972. Knowing that bootleggers were going to be all over this one just as they'd been for 1970's Happy Birthday compilation, this time Pete had a plan that would fix that problem in just a few short months. But herein lies one of the stranger developments in their story. In May of 1972, the group convened to record the follow-up to Who's Next. It was provisionally titled Rock is Dead, Long Live Rock, and at various times, Pete Townsend has not only stated that it was to be a concept album about the history of The Who, but was also to be a television special. Sometimes he claims that the album was nearly finished. But when people say, okay, can we have it then? The answer is usually become, well, we didn't finish it when we decided it was basically Who's Next Part 2. And a cursory glance at the proposed track list does lend some credence to that claim. But as there would have to be wholly unheard Who recordings of songs like uh, Women's Liberation, Get Inside, and Can't You See I'm Easy for all that to be cemented, we'll just never know unless those see the light of day somehow. The sessions did produce an abnormally catchy, hypnotic, and driving single before it was all scrapped called Join Together. There's a track, which also originated from the Lifehouse days, featured some instruments that, much like the intro to Baba O'Reilly, one wouldn't immediately recognize as terribly Who-like. Jaw harps, bass harmonicas, stuff like that, but once the group kicked into gear, there was no mistake in the call to arms, and as a bonus to those who were still delighting in 7-inch singles in 1972, the flip side contained that live recording of Baby Don't You Do It from that unreleased 1971 live album. But... Back to Pete's plans to beat the bootleggers. Like 
In late September of 1972, Pete Townsend released what would appear to be his first solo album, titled Who Came First? And while it would certainly look like an album of all-new Pete recordings if you found it in the rack of your favorite record shop back in 71 or 72, this thing was more like a mixtape of songs from the two Mehir Baba compilation albums and a few demos from Lifehouse. And when the needles are dropped, wrongs are made right again by the first legal appearance of Lifehouse's Pure and Easy on record. And one of the first things you might notice is just how dry this sounds, not only in comparison to Who's Next, but even John's first solo album. And that'd be because, again, I'd like to underline that these are demos, and Pete is usually playing every single instrument on his home demos. And based on the footage I've seen of Pete plunking around in his demo suite of the era, that was one cramped little space, and getting much room tone or life in any of those instruments must have seemed like a pipe dream at best. But that's also wonderful to these ears, because not only does every instrument used sound like, well, a natural instrument, but it allows Pete's voice to really soar, and at the time, it could be so supple and angelic. It's hard to imagine how Roger would hear Pete crooning like a choir boy in his demo recordings, and then would go for this natural growl. But I'm not going to question it. It's really only upon hearing Pete's initial proofs of concept that one can really start to appreciate not only his immense talent past all of the perceived gimmickry, not to mention the imagination and creativity that John and Keith would apply to the usually already fully fleshed out demos. But I'm not too sure that Pete felt that way about his own voice, because the second and third songs here, they're not sung by Pete. There's a tune written and sung by Ronnie Lane, with an unmistakable acoustic guitar part by Pete in the quirky song Evolution, plus there's a tune by Mike McInerney and Billy Nichols called Forever's No Time At All. Mike was the person that had first turned Pete on to his avatar, Meher Baba, and Billy Nichols, well, he's actually gonna become a pretty important part of this saga, but much later on. Side one is closed out by a totally different take on Let's See Action, given the parenthetical title of Nothing Is Everything. And this one is nearly twice as long as the UK single that The Who had released, and to these years it actually works a bit better being less confined, especially giving Pete some room for some piercing electric guitar work to cut through and a beautiful bridge full of bop 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 harmonies. The country-tinged song, Time Is Passing, gives us yet another look into the stash of Lifehouse remnants, full of this album's standard acoustic guitars, bass, and drums, yes, but also some very tasty and tasteful pedal steel and organs, and if my ears aren't deceiving me, some really well-placed flute underpinnings, though that could also just be a tricky synth patch. And the lyrical content allows us to start hearing nods to that elusive universal chord, with lines like, my heart has heard the sound of harmony, and... It's only by the music that I'll be free. It's a wonderful precursor to the trifecta of the most affecting songs on the album, to these ears at least. You've got the very mellow, want for nothing song called Content. I am patient each moment of eternity. I am able to help when necessary. You've also got the enduring fan favorite that Pete made up all at once in his hotel during a lonely tour date called Sheridan Gibson. Thinking about a sunny barbecue. Sitting in Sheridan Gibson, playing my Gibson. In my mind, there's a Cleveland afternoon. 
And there's also a song that might be among the most beautifully depressing tracks in the entirety of Pete's catalog, the slow and bordering on perfect reading of Jim Reeves' song, There's a Heartache Following Me, which, like Sheraton Gibson, doesn't really have much in the way of spiritual content, but rather was merely one of Mehir Baba's favorite songs instead. It's my hope that he loved Pete's rendition of the song just as much. But inside I long for you in the way Look around and there's a heartache following me You are the creator That's a hint of the closing track called Opervardigar, and I remember when I first heard it, and I thought to myself, geez, Pete, I get it. You love Mehir Baba, but you are just laying it on way too thick, and this is just flat out preachy. So the song was a bit of a turnoff for me at first. And then I found out that all the words were actually just a prayer written by Mehir Baba, and Pete merely composed the music and melody, and that got me to come down off my high horse to appreciate the song's slow build and all the tasty keyboard ear candy littered throughout the track. So, coming from all these disparate and disconnected places, Who Came First should really just play like a mixtape. But it doesn't. In fact, it works in an incredibly beautiful and moving way, with so many tender moments that few could have predicted from Pete Townsend at the time. I mean, here he was, smasher of guitars, the guy who allegedly hit Abby Hoffman in the head with a guitar at Woodstock, and he's being completely open, vulnerable, and loving to his spiritual master. It works with far more focus than one would predict, and to be fair, besides the closing track, one could certainly listen to this album without even noticing what had influenced the existence of it. It's an often overlooked gem in the catalog, but it's beautiful, earnest, and potentially the most that Pete had ever worn his heart on his sleeve before, or maybe even since, really. It's perfectly imperfect, and it's got a vibe that just can't be beat. But it's not the only solo album that came out in 1972. It can't be overstated just how many times John Entwistle would have his last name misspelled in the press, and that's if they even mentioned him when referring to The Who in print at all. So in November of 1972, he released an album specifically titled to make fun of the situation called Whistle Rhymes. And the sarcasm in the title really only scratches the surface here, because listen, if I'm being upfront with you, this might be among the top five most underrated releases related to The Who. And it's arguably John Entwistle's finest hour as far as the writing department goes. Gone mostly are the stick-in-the-mud stompers that one might have expected after the Smash Your Head Against the Wall album. Nothing quite as heavy as, say, my size, and nothing as sweet and solemn as What Are We Doing Here? But if you want the dark, the macabre, the sardonic John Entwistle, this is your album. Now don't get me wrong, there are some rockers present here, like the opening ode to decorative shelf figurines in Ten Little Friends, and we even get some French horn rock on a song called I Wonder, not to mention guest appearances from Keith Moon and Peter Frampton, but mostly... This thing is like the most fucked up Elton John album imaginable. John pushed his way through writer's block, composing the bulk of this album quietly at the piano while watching his infant son in the early mornings. And the idea that he came to material this dark under those circumstances makes this album even more shocking for anyone that has the ears to receive and perceive what's really going on here. When I'm feeling sad, I remember that you were the worst lay I had. 
like I feel better are really the crux of whistle rhymes, mostly studies of characters that are at a really strange crossroads in life. In that aforementioned song, the guy is just trying to, well, feel better after a breakup, so he's deciding whether to just yell some swear words or make a voodoo doll for some revenge. And then there's the insidious track called Apron Strings, the saga of a mama's boy right after she's passed away. But he's not grieving the loss. He's upset that she smothered him, did everything for him, and now he's got to figure out how to be a human being at all, and there's no one left to teach him. just does not let up. There's a song called I Was Just Being Friendly, and whew, it's a man trying to talk his way out of having propositioned a lady that he'd mistaken for a sex worker, begging her to keep it from his family. From where I'm sitting, the real heartbeat of this album can be found in the following tracks. One is called The Window Shopper, which is an unapologetic ode from a peeping Tom begging women to leave their blinds open for the sake of his own jollies. I can't afford to find and of course, there's Thinking It Over, which is often the most commonly name-checked tune here, and it's not hard to hear why. On paper, little should work about this country waltz filled with bass synthesizer. As great as the music is, it's John's very, very believable delivery of the lyrics sung from the ledge he's about to jump off of. Literally. One step, and this character is toast. And it's beautiful, chilling, and also weirdly kind of fun. Thinking it over, I decided not to bother. I decided to take my own life. I'm on the ledge outside my window. There's a longer experimental piece that closes the record called Nightmare, a big reverb-laden piece that sort of drops you back into the real world after running through John's brain for 40 minutes. It's unfair, but this deep, deep well of an album sounding so inviting with the warmest compression this side of Paul McCartney and Wing's Venus and Mars album, it's pretty much unknown outside of the most die-hard Who cultists. A promo single was released for the most lighthearted number on this album, a song called I Wonder, but it probably goes without saying that it didn't do too well at radio, and frankly, the LP copy I've got is such a textured image of a dark-looking fairy tale esque forest that it's almost hard to even notice John's name on the cover. Whistle Rhymes is not the album you're expecting from John Antwistle, and the relative commercial failure, it must have really stung, because there's just no denying that while John is a very, very different sort of writer than Pete, at this moment, his compositional abilities were pretty much on par with Pete. And John's work in and away from The Who would never be anything like this again, and it's just bittersweet to imagine what might have come about if people had just noticed how intensely great this album was when it was new. Please wake me up.
Late November of 1972 saw The Who release another Lifehouse castaway as a single. This one was called The Relay, and it's one of the strongest that didn't make it to The Lifehouse Project or Who's Next or the ill-fated Rock is Dead Long Live Rock album, but this one most clearly spelled out Pete's vision of what the universal grid that all of the characters of the Lifehouse world would be hooked up to at all times, or rather as we know it today, the internet. And despite a great hook and a creamy jammy midsection and a really cool envelope filtered loop of a guitar run through an ARP 2600 synth in the background, this one went, it might have actually been a little too forward thinking because it failed to reach the UK top 20 and it fared even worse in the other territories it had been released in. And that means that folks missed out on the three chord groover on the B side called Wasp Man. <laughs> That story, well, it's pretty straight ahead. Keith Moon got a hold of a wasp outfit, like a costume, at some point in the late 60s, and sometimes he'd pass the time on long plane rides as this character called Wasp Man, sometimes just making the other members laugh in the studio, and the band chose to immortalize it in that song. But the rest of the world, they still wanted more Tommy. Sure, there'd been a few productions here and there, starting as early as 1970 with a ballet in Montreal, but by 1972, the head of the Euro division of Mercury Records, Lou Reisner, had commissioned an all-star orchestral version of the album to be performed by the London Symphony Orchestra. Lou is the cat that produced Rod Stewart's first few solo albums, which likely explains why Rod was called on to sing Pinball Wizard, but besides having Roger Daltrey sing Tommy's actual parts, Pete showing up to sing a few narrative parts, and John being asked to sing Cousin Kevin, the rest of the cast was, if you'll pardon the pun, a who's who of 1972, featuring Stevie Winwood, Ringo Starr, Mary Clayton, Richie Havens, and many, many more on an interesting but wholly inessential take on the album. The recordings would be released in a 2LP box, and it'd get to be its own stage production eventually, with a few different celebrities taking part depending on which continent it was staged in. The box does look really, really cool, though. would see the group doing a rare and uproarious interview with all four members present on the Russell Hardy Plus program, and would even have them break their ban on cameras at gigs long enough to do one ragged show for Dutch TV and Vorberg. The band hadn't been playing together much, and it was especially evident in Pete's constant guitar problems, but they did eventually bring it all together for an encore of Magic Bus that saw Keith Moon joining in with the argument over the price of the bus, reducing Roger to a pile of smiles and laughter. And speaking of Roger, Roger Daltrey released his first solo album in April of 1973, simply titled Daltrey. It came out on MCA in the US and the fledgling track imprint in the UK, and it's still every bit as perplexing as I'm sure it must have been when unsuspecting folks were first able to drop the needle on this sucker. See, Roger had built a little studio in his barn, and during this break in the Who's major activity, he thought it might be fun to just make some music. Cool, can't fault a singer for that, right? But man, there is just nothing that can prepare you for the departure that Roger was about to take. Everything seems pretty simple on the jaunty opener called One Man Band, right? 
I'm a one man band Nobody cares or understands Is there anybody out there who could lend a hand To my one man band And hey there's a song called The Way of the World. It's the song that follows that one. Sure, it's not as striking as something that might make it to a Who record, but it kind of rules in its own rootsy folk rock way, sure. Your smile is a shadow Your eyes tell it all But I suppose that's the way of the world it helps to pay some attention to the direction of the lyrics here because the production on the album gets a little more grand with each passing tune. You begin as a one-man band, and eventually you're being swallowed up by a gigantic orchestra and your music is coated in a schmaltzy gloss. Think it over And maybe I can take you home Take you home there's some really beautiful moments here, like the proto-self-help song called You Are Yourself, the song that I think absolutely should have been the hit, the song called Thinking. Thinking about your face behind my door. And there's the single called Giving It All Away, which rocketed into the UK's top five singles, and I'm sure that the success of Giving It All Away compared to the chart placements of the last few Who singles was the topic around the studio water cooler at least once or twice and could absolutely give old Raj a reason to be cocky, but the fact is that, yes, he's made a saleable product here. But other than the fact that Roger sings and plays some acoustic guitar on the album means that, well, unless he commissioned the writers to go into a specific direction, he didn't actually do much more here than he might have on any Who record. It's great at showing that Roger has more range than anyone might have previously guessed, and his voice can cut through anyone's soul at times. You better check it out well first Before you meet all the blows Or you won't like to walk in You'll get caught in the rain But really, on the surface, this album can often seem like a somewhat misguided vanity album. Or it would if it hadn't been pretty successful. The most commercially successful solo album from a Who member at the time by a country mile. It sold, and that means it made an impact on someone, somewhere. At the same time, it's basically an album written by Leo Sayer with help from David Courtenay and Adam Faith, and well, besides the occasional unexpected dip into Rocksteady territory, it really sounds like you know, a Leo Sayer album. Whether or not that's a good thing is 100% in the ear of the beholder, but it's hard to argue that sometimes these sounds just don't really go together. Roger would be interested enough in exploring exactly just how far his musical range could extend, and this wouldn't be the last time that he'd try something completely outside the realm of what his main band specialized in. And you can't fault a guy who'd spent his entire adult life interpreting the work of others for trying to find their own sound, their personality, and who they are as a standalone individual, but musically he just wasn't quite there yet in 1973. And as you might have guessed, Roger's not the only one who released a solo album in 1973 either. 
The increasing breaks in the Who's touring activity gave pretty much everyone but Pete time to work on passion projects in 1973, and John Entwistle's passion project arrived in the form of an album known as Rigor Mortis Sets In. And sure, in the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly obscure record, even by the standards of Vanity Records by celebrities circa May of 1973, but it's one that almost never got heard at all. Literally until some massive changes were made to the funeral-esque artwork, even the Who's home label wouldn't handle the thing, no matter what the contents were. And while John was trying to attribute it to a band he'd put together at the time, MCA was beginning to handle their US releases, and they weren't going to put out the record unless they could emblazon John's name on the cover. They clearly hadn't learned anything from the low sales of John's prior albums, but there you go. No matter which changes were implemented, the BBC still banned the album due to imagery entitled Dooming It From The Get-Go. It helps to remember that right around this time, the soundtrack to George Lucas's American Graffiti was all the rage, and as a result, 50's nostalgia was totally in full swing. John Entwistle always loved the primitive side of rock and roll, so whether intentionally or not, rigor mortis sets in, fits right in with the craze of the time. But how is it? Well, if you missed John's whimsical dark humor, you're in the right place here still. There's a few cover tunes that aren't terribly moving, the worst offender being a grating take on Johnny Symbol's Mr. Bassman. Beyond that cutesy misstep and some relatively benign covers of Lucille and Hound Dog, there's still plenty to enjoy here. As far as the tone of the album goes, if you've got an aversion to 50s rock and roll that was clearly produced in the 1970s, this'll send you running away screaming, but who hates that? It's all innocent and fun, right? Until John Entwistle gets a hold of the genre, of course. Like, remember all those early rock and roll tunes about dance crazes such as The Twist and The Mashed Potato Time? Well, John's got one, too, and it's called Do the Dangle, and it... Well, you can only do it once, because it's really just directions on how to hang yourself. And, of course, if you're going for a 50s pastiche... You're gonna need a horn-laden ballad about an untimely teenage death, like the one we're introduced to in the way funnier than it ought to be, Roller Skate Kate. She was skating way too fast. She was far too daring when she crossed into the truck in a shop of They took her to the hospital, but it was far too late. She died in the ambulance, and, and that night, that night I, I burned my skates. Now she's gone. Who fans might grumble at a slightly more relaxed take on Who's Next's My Wife, John's voice is showing some signs of wear, and a few of the sentiments found in the quirky Made in Japan may not have aged so well, but overall it sounds like John just set out to make a fun record full of all the things he liked best from a formative period for him. He has a gaggle of ladies doing backing vocals, he's farming out his horn parts to other people, and sometimes there's just bits of laughter strewn throughout for no good reason. And the narrator in the closing Big Black catalog 
is eventually gunned down in a pretty clear barrage of sound effects, mirroring John's claim on the album art that rock and roll never really passed away but merely ran out of time, and it made that all the more affecting. It's not even a patch on his first two solo ventures, but he sounds like he's having a great time and couldn't care less. Good enough for rock and roll. Of course, Keith Moon wasn't idle during this period either. Not only had he been dabbling in films, he'd been recording some comedy sketches for the BBC for a series provisionally titled Life with the Moons. And though some recordings would eventually surface much, much later, it didn't seem to really take at the time. Meanwhile, Pete Townsend was hell-bent on turning the aborted idea for the Rock is Dead Long Live Rock album into something much bigger, much more expansive, and much more internal for The Who. And we're going to talk about it next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Discography. My name's Mark with a C. Discography is produced right here in my home studio in Orlando, Florida. Just a reminder, if you want to hook up with us on the web, the best way to do that is... For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. Is, well, not only can you rate and review us on iTunes or pretty much anywhere that you grabbed this podcast, and boy, does it help us out so much more than you'd ever realize, especially, especially the word of mouth. That really helps out a lot. You can hook up with us at facebook.com slash discography on CPN, or you can just type discography into the search bar on Facebook. And, you know, once you wade through like 4,000 pages that haven't been active forever, you'll eventually stumble upon us, right? If you want to hook up with me personally, hear all about the music stuff that I do. Okay, facebook.com slash mark with a C music. Or if you find me on Twitter, that's a place where I'm relatively active. Twitter.com slash mark fi. That's right. I'm at mark fi. M-A-R-C-F-I as in there's high fi, mid fi, low fi, and mark fi. I'm on Patreon because podcasting and making records rock and roll records in 2018 doesn't pay all the bills you can help me make more at patreon.com slash mark with a c that's m-a-r-c-w-i-t-h-a-c and if you want to look at pictures fine i'm not going to stop you instagram.com slash mark with a that's right just mark with a because i never finished typing it Thank you so much for tuning in. We've got so much more to go. Oh my God, you can't even imagine how immersive this is going to get. Does this seem like it's already immersive? Because it's going to get more so. Thank you very much for all your attention, all your enthusiasm, and for being here for season three of Discography. It's been a pleasure, and I'll see you next time, my friends. Background music alternately by Jordan McKenna, who you can find at SoundCloud by searching for Jordan McKenna, and Chris Zabriskie. He does our theme song and some of the more laid-back ambient music you hear. You can find out more about his music at chriszabriskie.com. Consequence Podcast Network.